His name is Willie J. Parker, and he's an OBGYN. He's also the author of a new book, Life's Work, all about the joy of being an abortionist. And now he's the subject of a fawning New York Times interview. Parker used to oppose abortion, but now he's for it. Why? The answer isn't really clear, but we're supposed to sympathize with him because he clearly wants to help women. Here is Parker's explanation for his shift from pro-life to pro-abortion. Quote, I had come to a crisis moment regarding a religious understanding that left me unable to help women when I felt deeply for their situation. I needed to convert from a religious understanding that left me paralyzed to act on my deepest sense of connection to one that empowered me to do what I felt to be the right thing. In other words, leave God behind. I have a better system, so go for it. This is actually kind of disgusting to compare the ideological movement from not killing babies to killing babies to a religious conversion. And the notion that this guy felt bad because he couldn't help women who wanted abortions, and thus abortion had to be correct, that's licensed to commit all sorts of moral atrocities. You feel bad for the woman whose husband's kind of a jerk, so you go and kill him? But here's the amazing thing. Parker admits, this doctor admits, that abortion is a life-ending process. He says, quote, If I thought I was killing a person, I wouldn't do abortions. A fetus is not a person. It is a human entity. So it's a quasi-human, which means that it should have quasi-human rights, even by that logic. No, not according to Parker. He thinks so long as you're not fully human by his vague definition... You have no rights whatsoever, and you can be killed for the sake of convenience. He says, quote, In the moral scheme of things, I don't hold fetal life and the life of a woman equally. I value them both. But in the precedence of things, when a woman comes to me, I find myself unable to demote her aspirations because of the aspirations that someone else has for the fetus that she's carrying. Again, this is pretty gross. He doesn't value them both. If he did, he'd put some sort of conditions on the termination of what he calls fetal life. Instead, he just says that a woman's desire for a promotion at work outranks some outsider's aspirations for her fetus. But what about the fetus's aspirations? Is the value of a baby's future truly just subjective? What if the baby's already born and the mother wants to kill it? Shouldn't outsider's aspirations for the baby now trump the mother's desire? Or no? Parker talks about making abortion easy for women, using his rhetoric to inure women to any sort of emotional struggle. He calls this creepily enough verbicane, seriously. He then says that elite white women are responsible for people worrying about abortion, and that's, you guessed it, racist. Here's what he says, quote, When women acquiesce to a role determined primarily by their biology of reproduction, even if it's unconsciously, they judge each other for rejecting that primary identity. So if you think that the most essential role for a woman is to procreate, and humanity doesn't go on unless you do that, then anything to interrupt that process is to be counterintuitive or immoral. The biggest insult to the notion there's such a thing as black that there's such a thing as black genocide as if the people who care about abortion really care about black women and black babies. Well, people who don't want to kill black babies in the womb care more about black babies by definition than Dr. Parker. But when you're talking with the New York Times, it's always convenient to pull the race card. It's also worth noting here that women are not acquiescing to some sort of arbitrarily defined societal role when they talk about the value of motherhood. This is called biology. The perpetuation of the human race occurs because women get pregnant and have babies. To see this as some sort of curse rather than the greatest blessing on the planet makes you kind of a sick human being. Parker finally compares pro-lifers to slavery, slavers. He says, people often struggle with why I, as a man, am deeply committed to feminism, reproductive justice, and gender equality. I come from a heritage of people who know what it's like to have your life controlled by somebody else. If, truly, if Parker really wanted to talk about a working analogy to slavery, he should probably start with what he does every day. Deny the personhood of another human being for convenience and profit, and treat that person instead as property to be discarded. If Parker is truly worried about controlling the lives of others, perhaps he should stop ending them. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. Okay, so... Here we are. We have a lot to get to today. We have a chock-full mailbag and gets all that. Plus, is Trump fighting with his own Supreme Court nominee? Is Trump trying to use the power of the White House to make people buy Ivanka Trump's stuff? 
<sighs> we'll get to that in just one second. But first, we have to say thank you to our advertisers over at Wink. It's spelled W-I-N-C. This is the wine company we've talking been talking to you about for a while. You go to their website over at trywink.com, trywinc.com slash Ben. And what they do is they give you a sort of survey, what kinds of tastes you like, what kind of tastes you don't, and then they recommend wine for you. So if you know nothing about wine like me and you want to get a great wine, then you go to trywink.com slash Ben, and then you go through the survey and they provide you a recommendation for wine that is top-notch. Everybody in the office has had this wine. This is why they're drunk off their butts half the time. And they say that it is really first-class wine. It's also really, really affordable wine. And they send it directly to you, and you go to trywink.com. It's, it used to be called Club W. Now it's called Wink. So if, you, if you've tried Club W, you know how good it is. If not, then go to trywink.com, W-I-N-C.com, slash Ben. And by the way, if you don't like the bottle that they send you, you can try it, and then you can toss it, and they'll send you another one if you, if you don't like the bottle and you think that it's, it didn't match what you're looking for. So it's a, it's a pretty foolproof Guarantee. They have a 100% satisfaction guarantee. Try wink.com slash Ben, and you get $20 off if you use the slash Ben. So make sure you do that. Let's them know that we sent you, and also make sure that you get that $20 off, which is a couple of wine bottles if you actually use that credit. So $20 off when you go to trywink.com slash Ben, and they cover, they cover all of the shipping. Okay, so we begin today with Donald Trump, and it's not been a good 24 hours for President Trump. It hasn't. And we'll get to Elizabeth Warren and all of all of the sexist nonsense coming out of the media in just a second, but it's it's been a bad 24 hours for Trump because he just can't control himself. And you knew sooner or later this was going to get him in trouble. Turns out it's sooner rather than later because... At the beginning, you can sort of mask his, his personal deficiencies with the fact that on policy, Trump's been pretty good, right? He picks Gorsuch, he puts out these executive orders that conservatives like, and you think, okay, is it really that big a deal that he mouths off a lot? And to a certain extent, that's true. And then you get a week like this one where he really hasn't done anything. There haven't been any major executive orders this week. Uh, there haven't been any major policy moves this week. It's basically just been Trump talking, and that's most weeks for the president. Most weeks for the president are not replete with action. Most weeks for the president are not filled with executive orders changing the nature of government. Most weeks for the president are the president going back and forth with Congress and the judiciary and making policy behind the scenes and talking a lot. And the talking part of the job is actually kind of important. Unfortunately, this is the part that Trump is not that good at. So we start today with this hubbub that is broken out over Nordstrom. So Nordstrom has decided they're no longer going to carry Ivanka Trump's clothing line. I think this is a jerky move. I do. I think it's a gross move. I think companies that are dumping Ivanka Trump's clothing line are really kind of gross. I don't see why you wouldn't carry a clothing line just because you don't like the politics of a person's father. Even if you don't like the politics of the person, I have kind of problems with the idea that you're not going to stock their clothing line. And Nordstrom said that they made this decision based on performance. They said that the sales of Ivanka Trump products slid in the last half of the year. That's certainly possible. It's possible a lot of people started not buying Ivanka Trump's stuff because they didn't like Trump himself. Ivanka Trump's people say this is not true, and so they claim that this was just discrimination, basically. So, look, private businesses have the right to do whatever they want to do with regards to their business. If Ivanka Trump's products are great, then other businesses will stock them, and they will sell, and it will be fine. Do I think Nordstrom is, is being stupid about this? Yes. Do I think TJ Maxx is being stupid? TJ Maxx has taken all the Ivanka Trump labels off of the racks, and they're now stocking Ivanka Trump's stuff kind of alongside all their other stuff. I think that's silly. Uh, do I think that it's ridiculous that, uh, versus, uh, what was it? There's another one. Uh, it's, um, I'm trying to remember, that one of these companies, uh, Neiman Marcus, pulled the Ivanka Trump jewelry. Do I think that's ridiculous and silly? Yes. I don't see what buying a necklace has to do with Ivanka Trump's maternity leave policy or anything else. That said, Trump's reaction is just brainless. It's just brainless. 
Donald Trump goes on Twitter and he starts tweeting about Nordstrom's. Now, it's not unprecedented for the president to get angry at people for being mad at his daughter. Right? The, the people were passing around a Harry Truman letter where he went after a critic because Margaret Truman uh, was a performer and somebody didn't like one of her performances and so he savaged the critic. That's not quite the same thing as what Trump is doing here because here it actually has an impact on a business. He says, my daughter Ivanka has been treated so unfairly by Nordstrom. She is a great person, always pushing me to do the right thing. Terrible, exclamation point. And then, which is odd, the president of the United States Twitter account actually retweeted that. So the, the feeling had been Trump's personal Twitter account was going to be for Trumpian nonsense and the president account was going to be for presidential stuff. And not anymore. Now, now he's retweeting that sort of stuff. That was not great. Then it got worse. Okay, Sean Spicer comes out, and Sean Spicer starts ranting about Nordstrom. So here is uh, Secretary Spicer. I, I think this was less about his family business and an attack on his daughter. Um, he ran for president. He won. He's leading this country. And I think for people to take out their concern about his actions or his executive orders on members of his family, he has every right to stand up for his family and, and uh, applaud their, their, um, their business activities, their success. Um, so look, when it comes to his family, I think he's been very clear how proud he is of what they do and what they've accomplished. And for someone to take out their concern with his policies on a family member of her, his is just is not acceptable. And the president has every right as a father to stand up for them. Okay, he has every right as a father to stand up for them. The question isn't as a father. As a father, what he's doing is fine. As a president, the question is, do you have the right to go out there and start railing on companies because they're not doing business with your daughter anymore? And it's not just that. Kellyanne Conway then goes on national television this morning, and she says openly, I'm going to basically do an advertisement for Ivanka Trump's product. And she says, go buy Ivanka Trump's stuff is what I would tell you. I hate shopping, but I'm going to go get some for myself today. Okay, look. There are plenty of us out here who would say that Nordstrom is doing the wrong thing. There are plenty of us out here who would say, go buy Ivanka's stuff. I actually agree with that. Go buy Ivanka's stuff. That's not the point. The point is this is not something that the White House ought to be doing because this is conflict of interest. You're not supposed to be using the press secretary of the United States or Kellyanne Conway, the senior communications advisor. You're not supposed to be using these people in order to propagate business for your, for your daughter or for your siblings or for yourself. Okay, this is self-dealing, and it isn't good. Under federal law, she may have violated federal law. Under federal law, federal employees are not supposed to use public office for endorsement of any product, service, or enterprise, or for the private gain of friends and relatives. Okay, none of this is any good. Okay, if you want Trump to be good, if you want Trump to have a successful presidency, this sort of nonsense has to stop. And this is not about railing on Trump. This is not about... I don't like Trump. This is about no one should be doing this. Imagine for a second that Hillary Clinton had been elected and she says, and people said, we're not sending donations to Chelsea anymore. First of all, the right would cheer. Second of all, if she then came out and she said, I want everyone in the country to give money to my foundation, to Chelsea's foundation, I think people would be a little upset and they'd have a right to be upset. In fact, we spent most of the last election cycle talking about conflicts of interest between the Secretary of State and the Clinton Foundation. To pretend that this doesn't exist when you stick a T by the name is just silly. So this is this is ridiculous, and, and Trump shouldn't have engaged himself in this. But that wasn't the only silly thing that happened. Okay, the other silly thing that happened is that Neil Gorsuch, who is the the Trump's pick, his excellent pick for the Supreme Court, which I have praised up to wazoo at this point. I've thanked Trump multiple times for it. Gorsuch was asked about Trump attacking the Seattle judge, this this district court judge in Washington, who put a stay on his on his executive order. And Gorsuch, according to multiple sources, ranging from Richard Blumenthal, Democrat of Connecticut, to Senator Ben Sass of Nebraska, who is a Republican, 
tore into Trump's attacks on the judiciary. So apparently Gorsuch said that he didn't like what Trump was doing. Uh, this is what Sass told Morning Joe this morning. He said, Judge Gorsuch and I actually talked about that, and frankly, he got pretty passionate about it. I asked him about the so-called judges comment because we don't have so-called judges or so-called presidents or so-called senators, and this is a guy who kind of welled up with some energy, and he said, any attack on any of, I think his term to me was brothers or sisters of the robe, is an attack on all judges. According to Blumenthal, Gorsuch called Trump's attacks disheartening and demoralizing. And then Kelly Ayotte, who's the spokesperson for Neil Gorsuch, she said he said that he finds any criticism of a judge's integrity and independence disheartening and demoralizing. Okay, so we now have three separate sources, including Gorsuch's spokesperson, who said that Gorsuch said he didn't like Trump's attacks on the judiciary. And this is fully within character. It's fully within character for Gorsuch. Gorsuch's first call after his nomination was to was to the uh, was to Merrick Garland, the guy that Obama picked to fill Scalia's seat because he has a lot of, of respect for other members of the judiciary, which I think is probably a good thing. You want the judicial branch to defend itself. You want the executive branch to defend itself. Conflict between the branches is totally fine. And yet, there's this whole contingent of people who now say Gorsuch has to go. Terrible. Well, I don't even know what Gorsuch is doing. So Laura Ingram, who's just become a joke of a human. I mean, Laura Ingram, uh, who, who is a very, very smart human being. She clerked for Clarence Thomas. She knows better than this. Here's what she tweeted out. Judge Gorsuch's comments about Donald Trump's tweets are concerning. Judge Pryor or Hardiman knows better. Doesn't bode well. Doesn't bode well. I missed the part where there's a, a provision in Article 3 of the Constitution that says you're not allowed to disagree with the president. In fact, it seems to me one of the chief qualifications for being on the Supreme Court is the capacity to disagree with the president when you think that he's wrong or violating his duty. And it's just, this is silly stuff. It's silly stuff. And then Trump, because he can't help himself... The, the problem is not that Trump attacks. The problem is Trump attacks like an idiot. So Trump, go, Trump then goes on Twitter, and he starts tweeting Senator Richard Blumenthal, who never fought in Vietnam, when he said for years he had major lie, now represents what Judge Gorsuch told him. Chris Cuomo, in his interview with Senator Blumenthal, never asked him about his long-term lie, about his brave service in Vietnam. All caps. Fake news. So number one, Blumenthal, what Blumenthal said wasn't fake news. It was confirmed by Sass and Ayat, both of whom were in the room. That has nothing to do with Trump. Trump was not there. He doesn't know. Second of all, when Trump goes after, he, he went after Chris Cuomo. Now, listen, I'm normally fine with going after Chris Cuomo. I think Chris Cuomo has the IQ of a kumquat, but that doesn't change the fact that Chris Cuomo did actually ask Richard Blumenthal about the military service lie. In fact, that was the very first thing he asked him in the interview. So Trump is just making a fool of himself. And there's no reason for this. It's very frustrating. If you want the policy to be good, and if you want the policy to be followed up, by excellent rhetoric and verbiage. And if you don't want the policy undermined by stupidity, then you should be upset about this. Okay, Trump needs to do better. He needs to do better. And if he doesn't do better, he's going to be undermining his own cause. We're going to talk a little bit more about all of that, plus the sort of trust me mentality. And we're going to get to the mailbag. And we have an epic mailbag today, so you're going to want to stick around for that. But first, we have to say thank you to one of our advertisers over at Birch Gold. Oh, yes. So if you are interested in purchasing precious metals, if you are interested in investing and diversifying into precious metals, Birch Gold is the place for you. They have a long-standing record of continued success. They have thousands of satisfied clients. They have a bunch of five-star ratings and an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau. And right now, they have a 16-page kit, a free kit they'll send you, revealing how gold and silver can protect your savings and also how you can move your money from your IRA or 401k out of stocks and into precious metals IRA with no tax consequences. So you're going to want to talk to them at www.birchgold.com, birchgold.com slash Ben. 
and you add that slash Ben, you get that 16-page free kit. Birchgold.com slash Ben. Ask all of your questions. Make sure you get all of your answers. And then when you're ready to invest in precious metals, which given all the talk about inflating the currency, uh, might be a good idea at this point, you want to talk to my friends over at Birchgold.com slash Ben. So final note before we, before we have to leave you on YouTube and Facebook. All of this is a problem for, for Trump, mainly because a lot of what Trump is doing now is reliant on the trust me phenomenon, the trust me philosophy, this idea that if we just trust him, it'll be okay. So Sean Spicer was basically confronted at the White House press conference with the fact that Matt Drudge was saying, what are you guys doing about Obamacare? Because the Republicans haven't touched Obamacare yet. And here was Sean Spicer's response. I, I, I think it's hardly stalling. I think it's a mammoth thing uh, to repeal and replace. I think the, the, there's no question the president's commitment to doing this. You've heard Speaker Ryan talk about how we're gonna, we should be able to have this wrapped up by the end of the year. Um, it's a big bill. It got jammed through, um, and, it, and it was very sweeping. And we're talking about one-fifth of our economy. Um, we can either do it quickly, as the Democrats did, and end up with a monstrosity where premiums go up, access is limited, or we can do it right. Um, and I think the president, while he wants to get this done as soon as possible and understand what's at stake, he wants to do it right. He understands how important health care is to American families and individuals. And so his goal is to get it done right and have an outcome that achieves the goals that it sets out to do. Okay, so all of that sounds fine, but it is really a lot of trust me. People are happy to trust Trump if they feel like he's in control. If he's doing silly things like fighting with his own Supreme Court pick, if he's doing silly things like using the White House in order to promote Ivanka's business, it makes it harder to do the trust me routine a little bit. So we're going to need some more good policy in order to balance out a lot of the bad rhetoric this week. This has not been a good week for President Trump. The last two were good. This one was not. But we'll get to more of that. You'll have to go over to dailywire.com. I want to talk about what the Democrats are doing because that's fully insane. Plus, we have the mailbag coming up. And you can be part of the mailbag if you go to dailywire.com right now and subscribe. $8 a month makes you a subscriber right now. If you want an annual subscription, you spend that same $8 a month, and that will allow you to get a free copy of this terrific DVD of The Arroyo. The Arroyo is a fantastic movie about what's going on on our southern border and why the immigration problem is such a problem, the illegal immigration problem and the drug cartels on our southern border. So go over to dailywire.com right now, get that annual subscription. And again, that gives you all sorts of, of extra benefits. I keep promising the Shapiro store. I do promise it is coming and there will be good stuff in it. Um, but you have to go over and subscribe right now. You are Otherwise, just go over to iTunes SoundCloud. You can listen to uh, the rest of this later um, and, uh, and give us a rating on iTunes because we know that you love us. We are the number one conservative podcast in the nation. Okay, so now back to the Democrats. So what's amazing about what the Democrats are doing is that the Democrats really have no line here. So Mitch McConnell, as we discussed yesterday, shut down Elizabeth Warren on the floor of the Senate. I thought that this was foolish. I thought it was counterproductive, but he did it. And Democrats are looking for an excuse. So where do you think they go? Where do you think Democrats go? Do they say they were just trying to silence debate? No, that would actually be a reasonable criticism, right? What do they, where do they go? They go to, where do you think? Yep, racist and sexist. Now, how is it racist exactly to shut down the whitest woman west of the Mississippi? Or the right, or I guess east of the Mississippi, she's from Massachusetts. She's originally from Oklahoma, so west of the Mississippi sometimes. In any case, why is it why is it why is it so terrible and racist to shut down a woman who is significantly whiter, as I said yesterday, than this particular piece of paper right here? Well, the answer is, the answer is that it's not. But Howard Dean says it is. It's sexist and racist for Mitch McConnell to shut down Elizabeth Warren. Here's Howard Dean, the former head of the DNC. I think. He probably might have tried a different tactic at that particular time while she's reading uh, a, 
uh, a letter from the widow of one of the great icons of, of American politics and American history. That probably was not the right time to do that. Elizabeth sa says a lot of inflammatory things. I have to say, uh, I agree, also agree, Ted Cruz says much worse things, and he's never gotten called on it. So it, do it looks sexist. It looks a little racist. I, you know, I, I don't want to be accusing McConnell of those things, but that's the way it looks, and that was not oh. a smart way to do what he did. Okay, so he's not accusing him of being a sexist and a racist. He's just saying, well, again, I'm not sure how it's racist to tell Elizabeth Warren, the whitest woman in America, to shut up. I, I just don't understand it. But this has become the left line. It just demonstrates that their entire politics boils down to this idiotic identity politics. Uh, a host on MSNBC said the same thing to Warren, asking, asking Warren if McConnell was a sexist, if that's what was going on here. <laughs> Do you think what Senator McConnell did last night was sexist? I think what he did was wrong. I think that but it wasn't reading, sexist? I think reading the words of Coretta Scott King on the floor of the United States Senate honors the Senate. Okay, so Warren is too smart to fall into that trap because Warren actually is not a stupid woman. I will warn Republicans. They keep saying, oh, it's great if Elizabeth Warren is the head of the Democratic Party. Don't try to pick your opponents. Sometimes it works and sometimes it don't. I mean, the Democrats learned that with Donald Trump this time, didn't they? And Republicans learned that in 2008 with Barack Obama. So don't try to pick your opponents. Elizabeth Warren is not stupid. She is not stupid. And her populist bent is very much toward the sort of voters that Donald Trump is attempting to win in, in states like Pennsylvania and Wisconsin. Do not make this mistake, folks. This is not a smart thing to do. Meanwhile, I do like this. Alveda King, who is the, the daughter of um, Martin Luther King, she came out and she said that it's just wrong to use the King name to play the race card. My mom, Coretta Scott King, wanted to bring people together. Here's Alveda King ripping Elizabeth Warren. She wrote a letter saying that immigration could hurt the black job market or the Negro job market as well. So she had very strong opinions and concern for all Americans and perhaps people all over the world. And I believe certainly that if she could look at the record of Senator Sessions today with integrity, she would say, well, he has worked to prosecute the Ku Klux Klan. He has worked to desegregate public schools. So it's almost like a bait and switch. Stir up the emotions. Use the name of King. And my name is Alveda King. Stir up people's emotions. Play the race card. Which is it she dividing was attempting your family? I don't, I don't know. We're, we're going to hear from the president shortly. No, no. Not dividing not my family at all. We are taking a look at many things that Mrs. Coretta Scott King said, Martin Luther King Jr., my daddy, Reverend A.D. King. But our family, we are peacemakers. We bring people together. Sorry, so Alveda is the niece, so in any case, what she says there is is perfectly within bounds, and again, trying to hijack the legacy of, of civil rights leaders in order to in order to shoot down Jeff Sessions 40 years after the fact seems a little bit over the top. Okay, time for some things I like and some things I hate, and then we'll do the mailbag. So things I like, we are doing boxing movies this week. A lot of people were saying I should do Raging Bull. I am not the biggest Raging Bull fan. Uh, the reason I'm not a, a huge Raging Bull fan is because like a lot of Scorsese films, no one in that film is remotely likable. I'm not saying that it's not a good film. It is a good film. But... Everyone in the movie, so you, you finish that film and you sort of want to go take a shower. It's really kind of gross. And so you watch the movie and it's like, who am I supposed to root for? Am I supposed to root for this guy who's a piece of crap or this person who's a piece of crap? And the answer is none of them. So instead, I'm going to recommend uh, a much older boxing film that most people haven't seen. It's called Requiem for a Heavyweight. So there's a version of this on Playhouse 90 um, that starred, that starred uh, I think Rod Steiger was in that version. But the version that, that people know a little bit better is the version with Anthony Quinn. Uh, here's one scene from Requiem for a Heavyweight. This is late in the film. Uh, again, the, the whole film is about a heavyweight boxer uh, who's kind of on the ropes. He's on his last legs. 
and he's being kicked out of the business by the mafia. Where you going, Hiawatha? supposed to lose and the mafia comes for him basically Okay, so it's, it's actually, it's an intense film, and it's, and it's a good movie. You can check it out, Requiem for a Heavyweight. I think it's available on YouTube, actually. You can just watch it for free. Okay, time for a thing I hate, and then I want to get to the mailbag. So, speaking of uh, abortion issues, Nancy Pelosi had an exchange with this girl who was adopted, and the girl said, why would it be okay for my mom to kill me? And Pelosi said, well, basically, if your mom wanted to kill you, she should have been able to. So here's Nancy Pelosi being her charming self uh, to an adopted girl. Um, don't you think that everyone has the option or needs the ability to thrive and succeed in life? I certainly do, and I love the word you used. You said, my mother chose. My mother chose. And we want other people to have, have that... Uh, have that opportunity to choose as well. And when we do, my whole thing, when people ask me what are the three most important issues facing the Congress, I always say the same thing. Our children, our children, our children. Their health, their education, the economic security, their families, clean environment in which they can thrive, a world at peace in which they can succeed and reach their aspirations. But many of our friends who are so intent on uh, when life begins in their view, do not subscribe to that after the child is born to meet the needs of the children. So I hope hey, you will- This is insane. So she says, I'm glad that your mom had the ability to choose. Um, you're saying it would have been okay if also that girl wasn't sitting there if she was a dead body right now. That's what you're saying to her. And I love the coded language. Well, these people don't care about what happens after birth. This is the dumbest argument on abortion. People say, oh, well, you don't care what happens to the child after it's born. No, I do. But first the child has to be born. And also, this, it's such a nonsensical non-sequitur, okay? It's the equivalent of me saying, you don't care about, you, you know, I don't see why you should be in favor of murder laws. Why do you oppose murder? Why do you oppose murder? I mean, I don't see you taking in the person who is going to be murdered. Right? Why, do you, why do you think it's bad to murder a homeless guy? I don't see you taking in the homeless guy into your house. I don't see you feeding the homeless guy. Why do you think it's bad if that homeless guy gets murdered? And the answer is because there's an intrinsic value to life that exists regardless of whether I take that person into my home and choose to make that person my responsibility. Okay, the intrinsic value of human life doesn't go away just because it's not my job to take care of that person. And listen, I think we should help out people. 
who have trouble taking care of their kids. In fact, if you can't take care of your kid, I think you should do exactly what happened to this girl. You should be put up for adoption, be adopted by a loving family that actually can take care of you. That would be a better solution than killing the baby. But this sort of covert language, this sort of veiled language about choice, it obscures what's actually happening here. What's actually happening is a young woman is saying to Nancy Pelosi, would it have been okay with you if my mom had killed me? And Nancy Pelosi is saying yes. Okay, time for the mailbag. Ooh, we have a very special mailbag today. So let's jump right in. First of all, Kyle says, whenever it is said that the Democratic Party was the party of slavery, leftists always claim there was a big switch wherein the members of each party switched after slavery, and hence the Republicans are actually responsible for slavery. What is the argument against this? Number one, there was no big switch. Okay, the Democratic South remained the Democratic South for the vast majority of the time up till like really the last decade and a half. The first Republican governors of a lot of these states are now being elected. And the fact is that when there was a switch in terms of presidential politics, it had a lot more to do with economic growth in the South than it had to do with the politics of race. Because otherwise, as Dinesh D'Souza has said, what you, what you would expect is all the Democrats in the South would have suddenly become Republicans. If the parties just switched places, why didn't the Democrats down South just become Republicans? In fact, the only one anyone can name is Strom, Strom Thurmond. But there are a thousand Democratic elected officials. They all stayed Democrats. And they all kept saying what they were saying. George Wallace was still a Democrat in 1968 when he ran for the presidency outside the Democratic Party. Okay, the idea that it was a bunch of racists who suddenly seized on race to... To, to make the Republican Party win. It's just not true. The movement toward Republican voting in the South had begun long before that, actually. It started in the 1950s. As industry started to move from North to South, and as industrialization started to take place in the South, there was a new burgeoning middle class that wanted to vote Republican. That's, that's actually the case. There's a New York Times article on this a couple of years ago. There's a full study from University of Pennsylvania, uh, and uh, I'm happy to dig that up. Uh, Chip says, hey, Ben. First of all, I'm a big fan. I appreciate all the work you do to give voice to conservatives everywhere. I'm a government and econ teacher at a private high school. I wanted to ask, what in your opinion is the best way to get high school students to understand the importance of protecting the Constitution as it was written and making sure they understand it's in our best interest to limit the power of the federal government? I mean, honestly, I think that with high school students, the best tack to take is say, do you, are you a busybody? Are you nosy? Is it your business what happens to somebody else in this class? Is it my business what happens to you? Do you like when I get up in your grill? Do you enjoy it when I get into your personal business? And if they say no, you say, well, the government is in the business of doing that. Do you really want the government getting up into your business and controlling every aspect of your life? Because that's what we're talking about here. And high school students may not understand the importance of the Constitution, a document written 200-odd years ago. Instead, they may understand better the basic tenor of the Constitution, which is you get to be left alone unless there is some attempt to harm that's happening. And, that's, and, and I think that most young people actually agree with that. You also have to explain to them constantly that the government's attempts to help are usually counterproductive and, and fail. Uh, that if you actually want to help people, then it's your job to help people. Don't suggest that the government is capable of doing things it's not capable of doing. Sean says, you've spoken out against tribalism in the context of ongoing societal victimization. Is nationalism and the desire to delineate and regulate borders a type of tribalism? And if not, why not? So, Sean, I wrote an entire article about this at National Review this week. This is the difference between sort of blood and soil nationalism and ideological nationalism. So America is great, not just because it has borders. Every country has to have borders. But because the reason that we have borders is because we are trying to preserve a certain value system within these borders. And we're trying to promulgate it outwardly. So if we are too weak inside, we collapse. And if we expand too far outside, we also collapse. So the idea is that a nation has to be powerful in order to promulgate its ideas. Sometimes those ideas are literally just blood and soil, and that is, that is tribalism. But if we are talking instead about promulgating ideals of freedom and individual liberty, then that's not tribalism at all. That's nation, that's nation 
uh, that's patriotism rather, it's nationalism in pursuit of, the, of, of an idea. And that's the kind of nationalism that is worthwhile upholding and promulgating. Uh, Robert says, hey Ben, longtime listener, recent subscriber. My question concerns compelling private businesses to engage in transactions they find morally offensive. Specifically, how do you reconcile the Civil Rights Act of 1964's mandate of private businesses to not discriminate on the basis of race while, while private businesses can still discriminate on the basis of religious belief? And then he, is it because the service the bakers provide is also participation in an act they find morally problematic? Or is it because race is superficial and doesn't inform morality like religion does? So, Robert, I'm actually fully libertarian on this question. I think the Civil Rights Act of 1964 went too far with regard to private businesses, which isn't to say I'm in favor of discrimination. I'm not in favor of discrimination. I hate discrimination. The way to run discrimination out of business is to outcompete it. The reason Jim Crow laws existed in the South, and it was those laws the Civil Rights Act of 64 was attempting to overturn, the reason they existed is because the government had to compel segregation. You understand? It wasn't just a voluntary regime. The government compelled it. The government would punish you if you didn't segregate your restaurant properly. And therefore, they had to push you, right? So the idea that private business would automatically segregate, that private business would automatically engage in discrimination, it's just not true. In fact, the Woolworths boycott in 1960, this is before the Civil Rights Act, the boycott of Woolworths, the attempt to desegregate the counters at Woolworths, those were successful in 1960 without any sort of government compulsion involved because the market actually doesn't care about racism. The market doesn't like racism. And, so, and I think the same thing should hold true in religious spheres. If, if you're a religious person and you don't want to service a same-sex wedding, that is absolutely your prerogative. It's also the prerogative of somebody to open up a shop across the way that is going to serve those weddings and make the money off of it. You know, the, the market is going to decide on these sorts of issues. So I, I don't like the idea that the government gets to come in and compel private businesses to do whatever they want because next the government is going to compel private businesses to buy certain things and sell certain things and going to compel you to violate your religious, your religious beliefs. Uh, I do think there's a slippery slope from the private portions of the Civil Rights Act to, to now. And uh, that's why I think that the Civil Rights Act was overbroad. Maybe it was necessary at the time to, it was, it was better to vote for it at the time than not have anything at all, which I think is true, but that doesn't mean that it was perfect. Okay, uh, Dane says, what would you say is the most immediate political or social problem we're facing today that needs to be resolved? Morally, I feel like it's abortion. Yeah, clearly it's abortion. I mean, when you're talking about the killing of a million unborn children a year, that is clearly the most immediate social problem that we face. Okay, Daniel writes, Dear Ben, as I'm learning about ethics, I'd like to get your input on where you stand. Would you steal a piece of bread to feed your family? Would you steal a piece of bread to feed your family? Why or why not? Well, Daniel, I can really only think of one way to answer this, and it's in musical form, so I think we're going to have to do that. There, out in the darkness, a fugitive running, fallen from God, fallen from grace. God be my witness, I never shall yield till we meet face to face. Till we meet face to face He knows his way in the dark Mine is the way of the Lord Those who follow the path of the righteous Shall have their reward And if they fall as Lucifer fell 
the flames, the sword stars in your multitudes scarce to be counted filling the darkness with order and light you are the sentinels silent and sure keeping watch in the night keeping watch in the night you know your place in the sky you hold your course and your aim and each season returns and returns and is always the same and if you fall as lucifer fell you fall in flame and so it must be and so it is written on the doorway to paradise those who falter and those who fall must pay the price. Lord, let me find him that I may see him safe behind bars. I will never rest. Till then, this I swear, this I swear by the stars. Well, I hope that answered your question. And if not, well, I guess you're screwed. So, good luck in your ethics class. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. We'll get to more on this in just one second. First, Pure Talk believes in American values and that free should mean, you know, like free. So when you switch to Pure Talk today, you'll get a free Samsung 5G smartphone. There's no four-line requirement, no activation fee, just a free Samsung that's built to last with a rugged screen, quick charging battery, and top-tier data security. Qualifying plans start at just 35 bucks a month for unlimited talk, text, 15 gigs of data, and a mobile hotspot. Pure Talk gives you phenomenal coverage on America's most dependable 5G network. It's the same coverage you know and love, but for half the price of the other guys. The average family saves almost $1,000 a year. So I challenge you to choose a company that actually doesn't hate your guts and shares your values. Let Pure Talk's expert U.S. customer service team help you make the switch today. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to claim your eligibility for your free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone and start saving on wireless today. Again, go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to switch to my cell phone company. I've been using them for years. They're fantastic. You'll love them as well. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro and claim your eligibility on that free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone. Start saving. 